it means that really dark days are ahead for Ukrainians as they now are looking at a much longer war than they had hoped for and with much less support than they started out with. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. There is a prevailing sense in the foreign policy community that the conflict in Ukraine has reached a new phase. The much-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive began in earnest in June and certainly made some gains, but nothing approaching expectations. In wide-ranging remarks to The Economist magazine last week, Ukraine's top military commander, Valery Zaluzhny, described the conflict as a stalemate, likening it to the trench warfare of World War I. Quote, There will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough, he said. Meanwhile, the world's attention has shifted to the Middle East, and the future of American support for Ukraine is uncertain. Joining me from Kyiv is journalist Tim Mack. He's been in Ukraine for most of the last two years to report on the war, first for NPR and now on his Substack publication called The Counteroffensive with Tim Mack. We kick off discussing the current state of the war in Ukraine and the significance of General Zaluzhny's remarks. We then discuss how this seemingly bleak moment for Ukraine is impacting the lives of Ukrainians and the domestic political implications of a future in which an outright Ukrainian victory is looking less and less likely. This is a timely conversation, and I think you will appreciate the nuance that Tim Mack brings to this topic. And I strongly recommend you check out his publication on Substack. So we have been publishing a lot of bonus content recently for premium subscribers. And now Spotify is making it easier for you to find this content. Make sure your Spotify app is all up to date, then go over to the Global Dispatches page on Spotify, where you will see a little banner called Exclusive Episodes for Subscribers. Tap there to see the hundreds of episodes that are available to premium subscribers. And if you click on any of those episodes, it will take you to the payment portal, which is managed by Patreon, but you'll access all of these episodes directly in the Spotify app. And of course, if you are using Apple Podcasts, you can upgrade directly within the app 
And again, there are hundreds of hours of bonus episodes. And more recently, I've been publishing little mini essays offering my own perspectives on key issues and in international affairs gleaned from my 20 years as a journalist covering these things. Thank you so much for your support. It is deeply, deeply helpful. Now here is my conversation with journalist Tim Mack. So, Tim, in the most recent edition of your newsletter, you suggest that it feels like we're hitting a troubling milestone in the Ukraine war. And part of the reason for this are recent remarks by Ukraine's top military commander in The Economist magazine. Uh, before we discuss the implication of Zeluzhny's remarks in The Economist, can I have you explain what has happened with this counteroffensive and what has been the broad trajectory of the conflict since June? Well, you know, obviously the Ukrainian military and those who support it have had very high expectations for this counteroffensive. And during the last few months, what we've found is that there's been an incredible evolution in the nature of warfare just over the course of this last year. And that's led to what Zeluzhny has called technological parity. This is what's led to what he termed a stalemate along the front lines in Ukraine. It turns out that without air superiority, it's very, very difficult to make progress against a really dug-in defender, that modern warfare will not allow for tanks and armored vehicles and masses of troops to advance quickly against dug-in defenders, particularly if those defenders have air assets, have huge minefields on their side, and one of the important developments of this war in terms of technology, has been the use of many, many different kinds of drones, and in particular, these FPV drones, which can spot and destroy armored vehicles on the move. Now, all of this has meant that the Ukrainian counteroffensive hasn't been as successful as its supporters had hoped for, and that these massive swaths of land being retaken, like we've seen in the Kharkiv campaign, and at the end of the battle for Kyiv, that's not forthcoming. So the question then turns to, well, what happens next? And so what did Zeluzhny say specifically that caused much sort of consternation among those of us who have been following this war closely and among those in Ukraine as well? Well, Zeluzhny made that classic gaffe of accidentally telling the truth to people who weren't really ready to hear it. I mean, I think that because expectations have been so high, that things have been so personal and sacrifices have been so great for so many Ukrainians, his acknowledgement that there's a stalemate on the front lines is a really hard thing for a lot of Ukrainians to hear. And that's what caused a lot of consternation this week. And a lot of people continue to deny that that reflects reality. For example, President Zelensky has said that he doesn't believe that there is a stalemate on the front lines. You know, I talked to one analyst who said, well, actually, it's not a stalemate. It's just technological parity leading to positional warfare. <laughs> and I kind of checked a little bit to myself. And I was like, well, what's the difference between a stalemate? And the analyst said, well, you know, it just means we're not locked into this 
situation. If Ukraine has provided additional technology, they could break the current quote unquote technological parity. But I, I think, you know, I mean, the counteroffensive, now I'm talking about my publication now, we focus on telling stories through a personal lens. We pick up on specific human narratives and use that as a way to tell the stories of this war. And it's not just what we're seeing in terms of analysts and what we're seeing in terms of where the troops are on the front lines and what politicians are saying publicly. This is infused in almost every conversation that I have in Ukraine right now is this very dark mood, people trying to come to grips with the military campaign's inability to achieve its stated goals, and these deep worries, which come from a number of things which we can get into, these deep worries that what happens next in the war, whatever it is, will be quite costly indeed, and that the failure of the counteroffensive to meet its stated original goals will mean that the war will not end anytime soon, that there will be no huge breakthrough that occurs on the front lines, and that there's an understanding that more aid, at least aid in the quantities and with the enthusiasm that we've seen from Western allies in the past, that that sort of aid will not be easily forthcoming. Yeah. And that latter point is something I wanted to ask you about as well. You know, it it does seem that we are at this almost geopolitical tipping point as well. The failure of the counteroffensive to meet people's expectations. Now, whether those expectations were right to begin with is one question, but there certainly was this high expectation that it might achieve more. And the implication now is that with expectations undermined, support, at least from the United States, does not seem to be as forthcoming as it had been in the past, also owing to our own kind of messed up domestic politics. How is that being interpreted by the Ukrainians you're speaking with and is being felt by people on the ground. The fact that, you know, things out of their control, the fact that, you know, the Republican caucus is so fractured is having such a profound or potentially profound impact on the war effort. How is that being sort of felt and experienced? There are a number of elements here, right? That the first thing where you really felt a turning point was after the Hamas attacks in Israel and the subsequent war in Gaza, you could feel a lot of energy and global attention shifting away from here in Ukraine towards the new war. Uh, You could see foreign journalists leaving and packing up and going to their next assignment. You can see, you know, the lack of interest. One thing that I looked up for our latest issue is the interest over the last year in the Google search term Ukraine. And you could just see it decline with, you know, a few peaks here and there, but generally the graph is down and and to the right. And you could see that global attention is waning as this war becomes kind of baked into the cake, that it's no longer new, it's no longer shocking. So that's been a major issue for Ukrainians. President Zelensky has said that the world just kind of got used to the war happening in Ukraine. And with that having occurred, or at least partially having occurred, it means that really dark days are ahead for Ukrainians as they now are looking at a much longer war than they had hoped for and with much less support than they started out with. That's a hard thing to come to grips with. And furthermore, I mean, you mentioned the Republicans in Congress. You know, the vast majority of legislators in D.C. Uh, support additional aid in Ukraine. There's a small minority that is opposed to it and is kind of gumming up the works. And there's no real clear method for getting this across the finish line. 
And what is also true is that a lot of Ukrainians are having to make peace with the fact that even if it does make it across the finish line, it may very well be the last time that Americans can pass a major piece of legislation that sends aid to Ukraine. I mean, you can, you can see how it's straining all sorts of coalitions that have existed for the last year and a half and probably won't exist in the years to come. You've mentioned a couple of times now a sense of like foreboding, dark days are ahead. Like what are some of the domestic, political, or even like social implications of this kind of generally, seemingly pessimistic mood? Well, a couple of things. We don't know the actual numbers of dead and injured from the war, but it's safe to say that tens of thousands of Ukrainians have died. And it would be a fair thing to guess that the number of dead are in six figures. Recruitment is becoming a problem and conscripting people who are motivated to fight is becoming more of a, and more of a problem. The average age of Ukrainian soldier is now 43 years old. Hmm. Domestically, corruption remains a serious issue and that's causing a lot of friction in society, especially among those who have family members, friends on the front lines. And they're looking at these stories of not widespread corruption, but the sorts of scandals that would be very scandalous in the United States if it occurred, and, and doubly so during a time of war. And that, that remains a serious problem and concerning also to Ukraine's allies. And then there's just the pure fact of what it's like to live in a war zone and never really feel safe at any time. It's hard to convey to a lot of folks that when you're in Ukraine, especially closer to the front lines, there's never really a moment where you're not on edge. And that builds up, that's cumulative to people over time. That causes a lot of stress. It frays a lot of nerves. And it creates a lot of irritation, anger, frustration. People are on very short fuses. They're ready to blow. And that has all sorts of impacts on society and politics as well. I mean, for so long, every public opinion poll that I saw out of Ukraine particularly since like the massacres at Bucha were one in which they were stridently opposed to any sort of cessation of hostilities or ceasefire that did not include like the maximalist position of every inch of Ukrainian sovereign territory ought to be come under Ukrainian control. Has that shifted in any way in light of this apparent stalemate and just like the general kind of mood and milieu that you just described? I want to preface by saying I haven't seen any data on this, right? And I'm not, I haven't seen any polling on this, but just anecdotally, I don't think the majority is at a place where they want to enter negotiations right now. But conversations about negotiations, something that would have been basically offensive to bring up a year ago, it's now, you know, the window of possible conversations now includes, well, what do you think about negotiations? And I think largely Ukrainians are still adamantly against it, but it's now within the realm of the thinkable to discuss it. I mean, NBC News reported this week that American diplomats had brought up the topic with their Ukrainian counterparts. And I think this is just the first in a long series of discussions that will be had over the next months and over the next year about whether the Ukrainians might be open to having some sort of diplomatic negotiation over how this war ends. This is not something that people would have 
openly discussed six months ago. But if you look at what Zolushny has called a stalemate, and you look at the enormous costs that the people of this country have already had to put forward, you can only imagine that these conversations will be had more frequently in the near future. I mean, is there also a sense among the Ukrainians that you're speaking with that you know they perceived Putin's strategy to kind of play the long game, to grind this war out, to affect a stalemate in order to buy time until the next U.S. elections in the hopes that Trump may be elected, in which case support for Ukraine will be sort of nearly unthinkable, that this is like the Ukrainian perception of Putin's strategy. It's always been an obvious strategic advantage of Russia's, that it is much larger, has a much larger economy, has a much larger military to start with. Global sanctions have tagged Russia. But you know, the single digits of GDP decline in Russia is nothing compared to, and I'm just kind of throwing out a ballpark here, a 30% decline in GDP in Ukraine, where all the vast majority of the violence and war is actually occurring. And so time is on Russia's side because it can withstand a long war much better than Ukraine can because the war is happening on its turf. Normal economic activity cannot resume as long as the war continues. And so it's always been to Russia's advantage to try to eke out something of a stalemate, which can't be unlocked, and then to push for additional concessions in return for peace. The Ukrainian position right now is, can the stalemate be broken? How can we break it? And how much more effort do we want to put into it before we're open to the idea of the negotiations? If you ask President Zelensky, he'll say there's no way we can make a deal with these guys. He dropped an F-bomb on the Sunday shows, and he said he can't make a deal with terrorists because you can't trust Putin and the Russians at their word. And I would say that that pretty much reflects the mainstream of Ukrainian public opinion. So on Zelensky and Ukrainian public opinion, I mean, has his star faded in any way as this war grinds on without a majorly successful Ukrainian counteroffensive? Are people in general pinning that on him? I haven't heard anyone personally say, well, the reason that, you know, the counteroffensive wasn't successful or didn't achieve its goals is because of Zelensky personally. I think most people would acknowledge that the reason Ukraine has succeeded to the extent that it has over the course of the last 20 months and change that a large share of the credit belongs to Zelensky. And I haven't seen anyone blame him. But, you know, Ukraine is really interesting, has a really interesting political environment. Uh, It's a democratic country where people are free to say whatever they choose. And they have, (laughs) as we see in many democratic societies, weird opinions. You know, I was talking to someone in Dnipro who told me, I think Zelensky is a hero. I think that he has done everything that could possibly have been asked for as a president. I didn't vote for him in the last election, but I just think that he has really rallied the country in a way that is more than could be expected of any political leader anywhere. And then he lets a beat pass. And then he says, that being said, I wouldn't vote for him next time. Like, you know, Ukrainians, I think, 
writ large still admire Zelensky deeply. It brings to mind what happened to Churchill after the end of World War II. You might recall that the United Kingdom immediately voted him out of office after the end of World War II. Thanks for all the help. Thanks for being one of the best prime ministers in the history of the United Kingdom. But uh, we're going to go another way. Voters have weird, <laughs> voters have weird conclusions, and it may be that in some future election you could see a phenomenon like that. Thanks for the help, Zelensky. We're going to try a different path. I wouldn't rule that out. But right now, there isn't anyone in Ukraine that has the stature and the reputation that Zelensky has. And so it really strikes me that his political future is pretty secure if that's what he wants. Your publication, The Counteroffensive, as you know, you know, tells kind of human stories of this war. Is there any particular story that you think captures like the zeitgeist right now that this status quo that seems to exist in which we are in a stalemate, there is not much hope for the future that you'd want to share that you think is, is particularly illustrative? You know, Ukrainians, like any people in free societies where you can have these vibrant political debates and arguments and shout back and forth, you ask, you know, 10 different Ukrainians whether they think the current situation entails a stalemate, and you'll get 10 different answers. And actually, we wanted to give voice to that. So our most recent issue is a debate between an optimist about the future, one of my colleagues, Miroslava, giving the view of how the Ukrainians are making incredible and gradual but forward progress towards winning the war. You know, Miroslava lays out the development of new technologies in Ukraine, new tank factories, new types of drones that are being developed, long-range drones, sea drones, first-person view drones, the development of new pathways for the export of grain, modifying different kinds of missiles for new types of use in this war uh, that shows the entrepreneurial spirit of Ukrainians fighting for their lives. And progress in negotiations for EU accession and, and perhaps joining the European Union, all of which are positive steps that are going to bring Ukraine closer to the West. So that's the optimistic view. And in our issue, we also have my other colleague, Ross, and his very pessimistic view about how Ukrainians are just obliterated and exhausted from two years of war, and that Ukraine has not adopted a total war mindset that it needs so that every single person in this country is pushing towards victory. And he talks about the accumulated trauma from all the death, destruction, and violence that are happening in families and friends, and how that's going to leave a generational scar. And that if things don't change, Ukraine could actually lose the war. Those are two really passionately uh, articulated and argued points that we had in our most recent issue. But I'm sure if we asked three or four or five or 10 more Ukrainians, we'd also hear from them their own views, pulling the argument in a different direction. This is just such a deeply personal war. I mean, I, I, it's, it's hard sometimes for me to talk to my friends back in the States about this war. I mean, it's like every person on your block has lost someone or knows a family member or friend who's been killed or injured or uh, has been deeply affected. I mean, it's just so incredibly sharp, these wounds, in terms of their psyche or, you know, metaphorically or literally. 
and there's a hugely diverse range of opinions. And we're trying to give a little bit of a voice to that at the counteroffensive, our substack. And we're trying to tell more human stories as well, trying to tell the news of the war through a personal lens. And to that end, what's next for you? What sort of stories are you seeking out in Ukraine? Well, you know, so basically what we try to do is we try to tell a compelling human story and use first-person narratives to illustrate broader issues. Our next issue is going to be about a woman who was living in London, helping Russian oligarchs buy artwork when the full-scale invasion started. And, And we use that as a way to get into sanctions invasion. She realized over time that, that this artwork wasn't really being purchased because of a Russian oligarchical affection for Western art. It's, it was more because some of this artwork was being used to hide money or circumvent Western financial controls. And her realization of that, and when the full-scale invasion began and her subsequent return to Ukraine, where she's originally from, leads us into the discussion of Western sanctions, how that whole system is created and executed and how they're avoided. So that's the main story for our next issue. One of the big things that our publication tries to do is try to fight this concept of Ukraine fatigue by making the war seem a little bit more real, by making it something that people back in the States can maybe empathize with a little bit more and and think, oh, well, that apartment looks a lot like my apartment or that dog looks a lot like my dog or, you know, that some event in that person's life really connects with something that happened to me as well. And that's kind of the part of the philosophy of what we're trying to do in terms of journalism. Tim, thank you so much. I'm a subscriber and I recommend others check it out as well. I'll put a link in the, uh, in the show notes of the episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me about Ukraine. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you.